Hey there, this is Sean McMahon. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast and thanks for supporting the ministry by lending your ears, your minds, hearts, all that good stuff. Don't be afraid to share this here message with a friend or a family member, even a stranger. Have at. It's not like it's going to bite. These messages are recorded live at the Community Baptist Church of Gayhead and Aquino on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and the good old U.S. of A. If you're ever in town for a visit or suddenly find yourself shipwrecked on the southwest side of our lovely little island, climb up the clay cliffs and come on down to our little old chapel for our weekly 10 a.m. service. No need to wear anything special, just bring your special self. May God bless you. So here's a story. Here's a tale of two cities. Right? So at the dawn of the 20th century in Austria, there was a new group called Young Bosnia, and they were full of old ideas that they thought were new. First off, they were ethno-nationalists. Okay? That means they thought that their ethnic group should have and control its own country, which is an idea, obviously, that's much older than the term ethno-nationalism. You've heard blood and soil before. My ancestors heard that term uh, in Germany, blood and soil, bluten bloten. On top of that, they were revolutionary socialists, which means they thought that the world was unfair, but they could make it fair through violent struggle. And of course, that idea, too, is much older than the term revolutionary socialist. Well, the reality at the time for young Bosnia was that the location of the nation, which this group wished to create or recreate, happened at that time to be the territory of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this was a problem that young Bosnia wanted to solve. So out of this group emerged a young man named Gavrilo Princi, who solved their problem. And on June 18, 1914, he assassinated the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, his name was Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Do you remember these names from history class, anybody? Yes. Okay. Well, this moment was a glorious moment for young Bosnia. But more than 100 years later, what does history tell us happened because of this glorious moment? Do you remember, Mike? The world was plunged into war. World First War One. World War One. The disarray and debt in the region that resulted from this, of course, then became the fertile ground where Adolf Hitler planted his seeds of error in the world. National Socialism or Nazism, which was founded on similar errors to those of young Bosnia, and out of that sprouted the Third Reich and its legacy, World War II, okay? So you see how their good intentions paved the road to hell on earth. They wanted to build, they wanted to construct, but instead they got destruction instead, and they couldn't have planned for that. Well, here's another story, okay? Right at the same time, at the dawn of the 20th century, in Russia this time, a group of revolutionaries gathered together with a utopian vision for their nation, a vision with actually a few things in common with that of young Bosnia, and this group was called the Bolsheviks. Okay? They appointed themselves the leaders and champions of a class that they frankly invented called the proletariat. In their eyes, the proletariat were oppressed by the Tsar, and the Tsar, that's, that just means Caesar. It's a corruption of the word Caesar. That's the title of the emperor of Russia, 
which was an empire, if you recall. They called Moscow the Third Rome. They considered themselves descended from Rome. Well, to solve this problem, the Bolsheviks hatched a plot to kill the Tsar. And that they did on the night of July 16, 1917. The entire imperial family, the Romanovs, they were rounded up by a group of Bolsheviks. Not just the Tsar, but his wife and five of their children, children even some of their household. And at the order of a man named Yakov Yarovsky, they were all shot and bayoneted to death. Okay. This was a glorious moment for the Bolsheviks. Glorious moment. It was a triumph for them. But more than a hundred years later, what does history tell us happened next because of this event? Right? Yet again, there is a road to hell paved by good intentions, which led straight to destruction. After this event, there was a century, a full hundred years of oppression for the Russian people under the Soviets, and not just for, this, for the Russians, but the whole world. Some of my ancestors escaped from this, and I think many of us know people whose ancestors did. And some people escaped from countries recently that are still under, under the uh, errors of the Soviets. Now, this event, curiously, was foretold by three Portuguese shepherd children in a place called Fatima by an apparition of the Virgin Mary. This is a fact of history. They reported that she told them that if Russia would be devoted to God, quote, there would be peace. But if not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions against the church. The good will be martyred and various nations will be annihilated. These words were recorded on July 13, 1917, three days before the Bolsheviks slaughtered the Romanov family in the name of their errors. Okay? Well, the Romanovs, whether they were good people or bad people, only God knows, but they were Christians, right? So they were the first martyrs of a century of persecution against the church in Russia and in all the subsequent nations that were annihilated by these errors. There are nations that don't exist anymore because of what happened here, right? We are still seeing the fruits of this in our day today in the conflict in Eastern Europe that's going on right now. Even though many hearts have repented and returned to the Christian faith in Russia and those nations who were once held captive by her heirs. For the same reason, by the way, there's even hope in China. China is held captive by these errors, but there's hope dawning in China. And that hope comes from Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm bold to say this. I'm unashamed and afraid to make that statement because I know it's true. This is the gospel. This is the good news. God raised Jesus from the dead to show the truth that Jesus is Lord, that his love welcomes us into a society that can be peaceful and good. Okay? But God has done so much more to show the truth of the gospel, and we need to never forget this. We don't want to forget that God has always, he exalts those nations who honor him, and he casts down those who cast him aside. He's done this from the beginning of time. The 20th century is nothing new under the sun, but it is our immediate history. And so it's also our immediate warning for the 21st century, written not in ink, but human events, that whoever, quote, has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has spited the spirit of grace, that's from Hebrews 10, such people are assured these punishments from age to age. And we've seen this throughout all history, okay? 
and all these terrible things that we just described, they befell nations that knew better, that knew the spirit of Christ. But just a few bad apples ruined it for everybody, for everybody. Now let's show some sympathy to the human condition. Let's think about these bad apples. Let's cast aside our judgment for a second because the revolutionaries who spread these errors, if we're gonna call them monsters, we must see that same monster in ourselves, in our own hearts. Because each of us has somewhere in our hearts a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, don't we? We all crave that peace. We crave righteousness that we believe can get us there. But when this hunger and thirst doesn't have the Lord, doesn't have the logos, the truth of God as its object, it can't be quenched. It can't. It starves. It starts to become ravenous. It becomes a consuming zeal. We need to be aware of this. This is the unchecked zeal that consumed the revolutionaries of young Bosnia, the Bolsheviks, even the Nazis, right? And this affection of zeal is how the devil can prey on such people and leads them into temptation and delivers them into evil. And what he does is he plays Cupid, basically, and he tempts their righteousness-hungry hearts to fall in love with their own ideas about what's right, what's wrong, what's good. And by falling in love with their own ideas, they fall in love with themselves. Okay? Yes, sweetie? Oh, you're not falling, I got you. Well, this is exactly what the devil did in the garden. He distracted Adam and Eve from the fruit of the tree of life, which was right there. It was right there for them. He distracted them with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate from that, and they became captivated by the knowledge it gave them. And so they ended up falling in love, basically, with their own minds. They fell in love with themselves. They became a feedback loop, cut off from God, right? This is the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Yet this fruit is a food that can never satisfy. And so that zeal, it just consumes and it consumes. So where does that zeal lead? Where does that type of zeal lead? First, it casts you out of the garden, right? That's what happened. Secondly, it leads to murder, as in the story of Cain. And finally, you see where the story of Cain ends. It's interesting. He builds his own city. He's cast out of the community of God, and so he builds his own. Okay? There's a man named St. Augustine. And long ago, he saw in the records of Holy Scripture and in all of human history, in fact, he saw a fundamental struggle. And he saw it as a struggle between two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Right. What he said was interesting. He said it's love that builds both of them, but each of a different kind of love. Here's a quote. He said, two loves built two cities, the earthly which is built up by the love of self to the contempt of God, and then the heavenly, which is built up by the love of God to the contempt of self. He says that in the City of God. Great book. Well, we can clearly see, I think, in the stories of young Bosnia and the Bolsheviks, etc. these are all the same stories, Cain's story, okay? Building the earthly city of man out of a misguided love, love of self to the contempt of God. They fell in love with their own ideas about right and wrong, right? They became a feedback loop, cut off from God. Well, in fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, we see the same story playing out in the news of our own nation every day and in the nations around us, right? These are the same story. They are the story of the city of man every day. But as for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, here, we don't have a permanent city, but we are looking for the city that's to come, amen?
It's from Hebrews 13. The city that we look to is the city of God, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where you have come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly to the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. That's right. You've come to the God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. Yes, my sweet love, a better word than the blood of Abel, who was slain by Cain, of course. This heavenly city is our city. This heavenly city is our kingdom. Founded not by a revolutionary concealed, consumed with zeal for the house of man and his ideas, but by the one who said to God, zeal for your house, God, has consumed me. And that man is Jesus Christ, the one who went ahead of us to prepare this place, this heavenly city for us. Our city's architect and builder is not man as was Cain's. But our city's architect and builder is God. Amen? Mm -hmm. I'm getting tired. Can I put you down? How about you sit right here? I'm giving the lesson. So we don't want to mix these two cities up. All right? We must choose our city carefully. In the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were faced with this choice between two cities. They could choose between the city of Jesus, a man who claimed kingship over a kingdom that's not of this world, right? And who warned the city of Jerusalem, in fact, that he said, the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground. You and your children within your walls, they're not going to leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. He said that in Luke 19. That's the fate of the earthly Jerusalem. It was sealed. Jesus told them ahead of time. Jesus city that he was inviting people into is instead the heavenly Jerusalem. It's an eternal city of peace. Jerusalem means city of peace, right? And he offered this city to them. He said, you could choose this city if you want to. Or they could choose the city of Barabbas. The Jerusalem of Barabbas, a man who the Bible says was imprisoned with rebels who had committed murder during an insurrection. In other words, a man like Gavrila Princi, a man like Yaakov Yurovsky, a man who shed blood for the city of man, for the earthly Jerusalem, which was doomed. Well, the crowd that day chose the city of Barabbas. They chose the earthly Jerusalem. They chose the city of man. And because they did this, because they did this, it was precisely that city which they lost. As Jesus Christ predicted, the city of Jerusalem was not long after completely destroyed. A holocaust, an awful, awful divine punishment. It says in Luke 19, because they did not recognize the name of the, the time of their visitation from God. So when we look at these stories of Russia, of Austria-Hungary and of Judea and many more like them. We might see a daunting cosmic struggle and we might lose heart because indeed it is a cosmic struggle. It's a cosmic struggle, but nonetheless with God, nothing is impossible for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's the way that Gavrilo Princip saw it, right? But it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of the world's darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, okay? It's a spiritual struggle. The nature of God's kingdom does not require 
the kind of insurrection and violent struggle of Barabbas, of uh, Yurovsky, or of Gavrila Princip, okay? In fact, as we've seen, God despises this kind of thing, and he punishes it, as we've seen in history. Rather, our kingdom struggle is fought with the full armor of God. And this is what St. Paul says is the full armor of God, okay? Check out this armor. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckle around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness, and with your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the good news of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God. Amen. Amen. So choose your city carefully. You are charged by the word of God to choose the city of God. This is the prophetic message at the heart of all scripture and human history. Choose the city of God. The community of God. That's the gospel. Now consider this, in the, in the city of man, in the city of created beings, it's only natural that the ruler is inevitably the most powerful created being, right? A city of created beings. Its ruler is going to end up being the most powerful created being who wants that position. Well, who is a created being? Angels. And which angel wants to rule over the communities of humans? That is the Satan. That is why the power-hungry Satan enthrones himself at every opportunity over every such city of man. And then you see very quickly, everything is thrown into chaos, into rebellion, into insurrection against God, okay? But in the city of God, who's uncreated, uncreated, everything is in its right place in the divine order beneath his holy feet, okay? It's this city we must choose and for which we must struggle with the full armor of God, which is prayer, okay? And with God, nothing is impossible. This sounds like a cosmic struggle, and it is, but it's not impossible. St. Paul, before getting too carried away with his lofty language about the armor of God, he reminds us that the true meaning of everything, everything he's saying about the armor of God is just this. He puts it simply, he says, pray in the spirit at all times with every kind of prayer and petition. That's all it means. It just means pray. Pray your butt off. And that's how we win this cosmic struggle for, uh, for, for the soul of the city of God, okay? And so choose your city carefully and pray for your city of God at all times. And thank God, because Jesus taught us how to pray for the heavenly city of his kingdom, actually. He taught us how to pray for the heavenly capital city of his kingdom. He taught us with the words, Our Father, join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to the Sean McMahon podcast. Visit SeanSellickMcMahon.com for more information about his ministry. For more about Sean's music, please visit WorkmanSong.com.